Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. What did you think of this brave new world? It's a very unusual... This was a classic. I mean, this is a classic. How many people read it before? I mean, you might have read it in high school. Anyone ever read it before? Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. What do you think of it? Before I say anything, what, what do you think... Why would I have suggested that you read this in a course dealing with social issues? Politics and science fiction, or science fiction and politics. Why would Brave New World be useful or maybe we can actually start with what's the what's the basic idea what's the basic plot what's going on in this in this novel by the way Aldous Huxley also wrote a thing called Brave New World Revisited which where he was able to summarize where he thought the 20th century went especially with World War II and everything and the Cold War and everything um we didn't read The Brave New World Revisited because I sometimes think that his view on the years that came after he wrote this thing was more narrow, that The Brave New World actually has a lesson that goes beyond the 20th century, well into the future. So his short-term evaluation in Brave New World Revisited of how his novel juxtaposed with the realities of the years that came into the future was actually probably short-sighted because much more is happening is still happening that this novel is relevant to okay brave new world what is it about what's the general idea about like a perfectly organized world it's like everything's been taken into account everything's been Everything's been taken into account. Everything's been conditioned. Well, name some of the people. What well, are the what are, what are the the major the major figures here? Well, in the beginning, you have um, oh, Winina. Mm-hmm. You got the DHC. You the the DHC, the guy who's taking the kids around on a tour. Uh huh. And. Um, you got the squatty little guy that they think put out that they think got alcohol in his um, incubation tube. Mm-hmm. And um, Mustafa Mond, who's the like controller for Western Europe. And uh, and later on, you have the Savage. Hmm. Savage. Savage. What's his other name? John. John. John Savage. Well, what uh, what are some of the Things that are the plot ideas that are going through here. What's the basic idea? What's what's going on in this novel? If you were to try to summarize it for someone who had never read it, what would you say is it about? To try to encourage them to read it. is completely controlled and organized and dehumanified too. Yeah, dehumanified. And what did you say? Dehumanified? Dehumanified. Dehumanified. And 
then there's this guy, John Savage, who basically ends up in the end with a choice between, you know, whether he wants the, he ends up with two really cruddy alternatives. He either gets this, the, like, insanity of living in the, in this community, or he gets the, I don't remember, in the forward, Aldous Huxley phrased it really well, but he, he ends up with this choice between, like, the inside and the outside, and neither one looks really good. Hmm. Neither one was very good. Well, look, let's let's look at this novel from a, a perspective here. What we have is some major characters, Lenina, her and her boyfriend. What's her boyfriend's name? Henry Foster. What's that? Henry Foster. Mm. Actually, there's a couple that she's involved with. What do you think about all these people that they're involved with? That she's involved with. What do you think about all the idea of? May because the children are produced by the state, <coughs> so like sex is become nothing really important anymore. It's just like a game that people play. Yeah, a game is is sex, but what is what's the purpose for it? Why are they? Is it just a total dropping of morality? Why is sex? something that they've integrated into their into their society so that they institutionalize it they teach it to young teenagers and insist that they do it why would they do something like this in this strange world what's the, what is what's the goal of the society that is for forcing them to do that why would you think is it that like everything for everybody or we all belong to each other or that thing and so you know you can't stay with one person I mean if you stayed with one person then everybody wouldn't be everybody else's so then you would force promiscuity upon a population so that they would never remain monogamous okay they would never remain monogamous but let, let's go a little bit further why is that important to society for someone not to remain monogamous in this world in this, in this novel what, what, if someone is monogamous, what is different about that person, their, that person's view, perspective on the world? What is it about that person's mate? Put yourself in a position of somebody who has a monogamous relationship. What is it about your mate? That's like the one person for you. There's only that one person you couldn't see yourself with anyone else. That's that one person for you. You can't see yourself for anyone with anyone else. That's right. What does that do to your thinking? It narrows it, I guess. It narrows it, doesn't it? It narrows it down to a very special thing. This is a special person. There's like a little room for change, too, because you're just thinking that one way. Yeah, you're thinking one way. There's really no conformity to what other people want it's your way this person your choice but when you devolve the sexual experience to something that is mass experienced where one has multiple partners over and over and over and over again then you have no special person you have no special you and what do you do when you lose that special person that special person is not just a reflection on that person 
Pardon me? You lose your own identity. You lose your own identity. Yeah, that's great. You lose your own identity because your identity is in part determined by what you particularly like. And your spouse is a very clear choice that you wake up in the morning and look at and there it is, your choice. So that reflects you. What are some other aspects of the novel that deal with well, what what are the two things in society that we complain about? Sex and drugs. Drugs. That's right. So, how does drugs fit into this brave new world by Aldous Huxley? Who's taking drugs in this world, and only, for what reason? Only the top tier people, and. Uh, only well I mean I, I didn't really under, like it didn't seem like they were addicted to them so much as they took them to like increase their enjoyment of various experiences like that night when Lenina goes with um, Henry Foster to uh, to the dance to the thanks to the uh, to the like sense organ concert dance hall that I didn't really understand um, and then they end up taking Soma just so that it like it's better Soma. for them. Soma. Soma's all out all throughout this novel. Yeah. What does Soma do? Makes you happy. Makes you happy. What else does it do? It's interesting that Soma in Swahili means to sleep. What, is a, what else does Soma do? Well, think about it in relationship to the spouse issue. What is the spouse issue? You have a reflection of who you are, your identity, your thoughts, your feelings about that person. You have peak emotions, really strong emotions for that person. What does Soma do? You end up having stronger emotions for Soma than you do for that person. I mean, if you spend time with a person, then you obviously, you know, you associate being happy with, you know, spending time with that person. But then these people, and to some extent you associate being happy with having sex, and then these people just don't, I mean, like, sex is something that they don't even think about anymore, but to them it's not, like, the highest pleasure. It's, like, it's on the scale, but then there's Soma which is better. Well, that's great. Um, it does make it that way. At least that's the way they value it afterwards. But what is the ultimate experience? Let's go to Linda. Who's Linda? The mom. Who is the mom? Linda, the mother. Who is she? Who is she the mother of? Anyone remember? John's mom? That's right. She was John's mom. John's mother. And she had a relationship with who? And then was abandoned in the in the savage world. When she fell down a ravine and got gunked on the head and resuscitated and brought back to being okay with the savages. But 
then she uh, <coughs> couldn't be found by everybody else and she was left there and she gave birth to John. Remember she was she was one from the what was she a beta from the civilized society second tier person she was out there with Mustafa Mond wasn't it and they had a relationship and when she got lost she lost all of her birth control stuff and she ended up having the child of Mustafa Mond naturally which is something that never happens and if you talk to a woman who's given birth that's a peak experience in their life so that peak experience is gone too well what did Linda do when she finally got back to civilization when she was discovered and brought back what did she do Do you remember what she did? The issue of Soma. What did she miss so much? In fact, when she met Lenina and the others for the first time, what was the first thing she started talking about? Soma. Not having Soma. And when she went back, she had the Soma. She took the Soma to a point where she died, produced senility. It was an overdose. So, one of the things you want to think about with this brave new world is the issue of what that soma stands for. Is it a better peak experience? Or is it a flattening experience? Where you don't have those peak experiences anymore. You live in a fantasy world. The issue of fantasy is big. Now listen, there's something in today's New York Times. Let me read it. Let's say we can relate this to what we're talking about here. This is Thursday, February 9th, 2006, today, on the front page. A panel explores standard, uh, standard tests for colleges. I don't know if this will happen in time for you folks, but it might. A higher education commission named by the Bush administration is examining whether standardized testing should be expanded into universities and colleges to prove that students are learning and to allow easier comparisons on quality. Actually, they already do that. But this would be, I suppose, a step up. What is the standardized testing that occurs already? What's that? The SAT. I can't hear you. The SAT. The SAT is to get in, but what about... After the... If you go to graduate school, you have like the LSAT, the MCAT, 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 yeah, MCAT, LSATs, and the uh, GRE. So there's a lot of standardized tests for once you graduate to see what's happened. But listen to this. Now they're thinking of expanding that to prove that students are learning and to allow easier comparisons on quality with regard to schools. Because right now you graduate and you take a test. But those standardized tests are your scores. They're not evaluating the university. They're evaluating just you. So we're talking about something different here. Charles Miller, a business executive who is the commission's chairman, wrote in a memorandum recently to the 18 other members 
that he saw a developing consensus over the need for more accountability in higher education. What is clearly lacking is a nationwide system for, comparison, for comparative performance purposes using standard formats. Mr. Miller wrote, adding that student learning was a main component that should be measured. Mr. Miller was head of the regents of the University of Texas a few years ago when they directed the university's nine campuses to use standardized tests to prove students were learning. He points to the tests being tried there and to other testing initiatives as evidence that assessment of writing, analytical skills, and critical thinking is possible. The Commission on the Future of Higher Education appointed last fall by the Secretary of Education, Margaret Spellings, has until August to make a report on issues that include accountability, cost, and quality. Educators are wary. To subject colleges to uniform standards is to trivialize what goes on in higher education, said Leon Botstein, president of Bard College. Excellence comes in many unusual ways. You cannot apply the rules of high-stakes testing in high schools to, universe, uh, to universities. In an interview, Mr. Miller said he was, and this is Charles Miller, president of the Commission on Future of Higher Education, Mr. Miller said he was not envisioning a higher education version of the No Child Left Behind Act, which requires standardized testing in public schools and penalize the schools whose students do not improve. There is no way you can mandate a single, single set of tests to have a federalist higher education standard system, he said. But, he said, public support reporting of collegiate learning as measured through testing would be greatly beneficial to the students, parents, taxpayers, and employers, and that he would like to create a, nation, a national database that includes measures of learning. It would be a shame for the academy to say, we can't tell you what it is, you have to trust us, Mr. Miller said. He said he would like the commission to agree on the skills college students ought to be learning, like writing, critical thinking, and problem solving and to express that view forcefully. What happens with reform, he said, is that it rarely happens overnight and it rarely happens with a mandate. It does happen with levers, Mr. Miller added, and maybe the accreditation process will be one, or state legislators, or members of Congress. His push comes as college officials in an era of high tuition say they already feel pressure to justify costs. But university officials are wary of the notion that testing regimes should be used to measure all the different institutions that make up American higher education, small liberal arts colleges, large public universities, proprietary schools, and religious academies, particularly if there is government involvement. David L. Warren, president of the National Association of Independent Colleges, a group representing private nonprofit colleges, said, what we oppose is a single national high-stakes, one-size-fits-all uber-outcome Uber exam. The notion of a single exam implies there are national standards, and that implies a national curriculum. Then we are on the way to a centralized Prussian educational system. 
when Ms. Spellings, the educational secretary, named the commission, she said that choosing a college was one of the most important and expensive decisions families can make, and that they are entitled to more information. There is no unanimity on the commission, but some members also expressed interest in measuring student learning. Okay, on one last paragraph. <clears throat> Katie Haycock, commissioner who is director of the Educational Trust, Education Trust in Washington, which has supported standardized testing, said in an email, any honest look at the new adult literacy level data for recent college grads leaves you very queasy, and the racial gaps are unconscionable. So doing something on the, impo- on the assessment side is probably important. The question is, what and when? How does this relate to our novel? What's going on here? What's this idea? I don't know, but I personally think, like, when <coughs> in high school you take standardized tests or whatever, that they like, make you like, all the same, and they take away like anything because you're trying to all study the same thing to get into like different places. It's not really like you have your own identity in high school. And then like they put, take that into college. College is like where you kind of everyone says you find yourself and you find your true like meaning or calling in life and if they put the like standardized testing in I think it'll eliminate that again and I don't think that's really right because you're just going to like keep creating the same people again yeah it's an interesting idea creating the same people standardized testing by its nature right? by its word as you're saying is standard yeah. all people the same now but what does this you know I'm, I'm all in favor of people learning more I mean I'm I'm one of the great advocates for better math instruction and and in my refreshment seminars that you'll see when I grade your papers I, I really work on your writing skills as well so math and writing are super important to me but let's just focus now on math for a second we have approximately 600 majors that are political science majors in this in this college it's the largest major in the college. We have a joint major in political science and math. We just started. We're just starting that. It's the only joint major of its type in the country. And what we're trying to do is encourage people to use math, people who can apply math skills in political science. It's exceptionally rare. Maybe we're looking at 10 majors. How many physics majors are there at Emory? How many? Anyone have, anyone have an idea? <coughs> 30 or 40. 40. Probably 30 or 40. 20. 30 or 40. Well, I've, it varies, of course. Uh, last year, at some point, there were 13. I heard it might have gone up to 20. Not many. And each one gets a key to the building, just like a faculty member, a key to the physics building. <laughs> They're treated like gods. They're so rare. Of course, you have more at Georgia Tech, at a technical place, but at a liberal arts college like here. But lots of people could become, I mean, we have a huge physics program. We have tons of faculty, buildings, you know, laboratories and everything. We just don't have students. Well, what does that tell you? We have five to 6,000 students at Emory. What does that tell you if so many are going into political science and so many are going into pre-med courses 
What's what's the thinking process that's going on? Get more money. What's that? Get more money. Get more money. A physicist, like if you get a physics major, you end up doing research or something like that, which, while a very satisfying career, isn't exactly a like very well-paying career compared to a lawyer or a, a politician or a doctor. And in the modern world, it's how much money you have that really counts. You know, the issue of money is a very interesting thing. People talk about that a lot. But, you know, the issue of money is really misunderstood. A lot of the lawyers that graduate from law school, a lot of them, rent their offices by the hour, meaning they don't, re- they don't have enough money to have a permanent office with secretarial staff. And when they meet clients, they have an office, they rent by the hour so the person has an office, and they think it's their office, but in reality, they're just there then and then as soon as the client is gone they're out of there and they don't pay for it anymore so the point is that not and so a lot of office uh, lawyers work out of their homes and so on the issue of lawyers being considered big bucks people and they're always chasing ambulances it's really a rat race of a job I have a lots of people that I've known who have become lawyers with really altruistic ideas they wanted to work in the media industry or whatever but there are so many lawyers what it ultimately turns out is that almost all of them end up either chasing ambulances or going down to the drug to the drug bus near the courthouse every Thursday and picking up their clients to defend you know druggies pushers and things like that they're defending the worst of society sometimes just in order to make their mortgage payments and in terms of the medicine there are an awful lot of doctors who are extremely unhappy with the standardized medicine, standardized medicine, standardized health care. you got 15 minutes per client. You've got to treat them all in a uniform fashion to avoid lawsuits. Do you get the idea? And I know some lo- doctors, I, I've known a lot of dentists who got out of dentistry, but I know there's now, uh, there's now some doctors who are getting out of doc- being a doctor to do something else in life. And their incomes, of course, you have high-end doctors that earn still a lot of money, but their incomes are not as much as a lot of people would think because healthcare people, healthcare managers, you know, pushing them down, they, they become salaried persons. But they, they nonetheless earn something. But now look at a professor of physics. We were saying professors of physics don't earn as much. Okay, well, you can do the same thing with political science. Well, I don't know, we placed a graduate student in political science at Chicago last year. And the, we placed them at, you know, top-name schools, other graduate students at top-name schools other years. And we've made, uh, we, we generally place almost all of our graduate students. We have about four or five a year in good departments. And their salaries that they get to those departments typically range from fifty to $70,000 starting and that's without the dissertation even completed now imagine getting seventy thousand dollars starting and sometimes with a light teaching load but they're in class five hours a week two and a half hours a day two classes on a tuesday and two classes on a thursday hour and 15 minutes each to two and a half hours per day twice a week five hours a week they're in class they're working, let's count how many months they're working. September, October, November, 
plus half of, a de- half of December. That's three and a half. School starts up again in mid-January, so half of January, so that's four months. February, March, April. That's when classes end the end of April. So how many months total are we dealing with? Seven months a year. And out of those seven months, two days a week. And of those two days, only five hours in class. Now compare that to a doctor or a lawyer who starts crack of dawn and goes till seven o'clock, eight o'clock every day. And a doctor becomes an employee and gets two or three weeks off. So what do you do as an academic with all that free time? What are we paid to do? Are we paid just to meet with students? No, what an academic is paid for is to work with students and to do research, both of those things. And to do research, you have to have free time. You have to be able to do your work. You have to be able to sit in front of a word processor, think, do experiments, do things like that. So imagine that, paid to be creative, paid to actually come up with new ideas that generate society, to generate growth in society. Yet, what do we have as a society? We have instead the largest majority of our undergraduates, and we're typical of Harvard, Stanford, Yale, everything, anywhere, go into pre-law or pre-med. What are those kids? Those thousands and thousands and thousands across the country that are going to pre-law and pre-med. Are they unique individuals or are they standard? You can, you can tell a standard by looking at a herd of zebras. What do a herd of zebras do? They all look alike and they all move alike and they all stay together. Well, out of all of our majors here at Emory, five, six hundred, pre-law, that's standard. Standard thinking. You have to ask, where did they think like that? When did they think like that? How did they think like that? What made them all want to do the same thing? See how brave the world is very relevant. It really is telling you as an individual that there is a standard way of thinking. And when you get out of line, there's SOMA. Let's talk about SOMA. What's a modern-day equivalent of SOMA? It's something that takes away peak experiences. One of the most widely prescribed drugs on the planet Earth. Valium. Valium was another... Temazepine? Prozac? How's Prozac? Prozac is like Valium. Like Valium, okay. Do you know that they did a water sample in the Thames River? Where's the Thames River? London. London. They did a water sample and they found significant amounts of Prozac in the river. (laughs) How did it get into the river? There were so many people on Prozac it was coming out of their urine, going into the sewage, and going into the river. And they could pick it up in London, in the river, in the water supply. It was that strong. Uh, it was that much Prozac. It's a free little mental health clinic. Man. I mean, I tell you. Take your cup from the table. You talk about standardization. Take away those peak experiences. Calm you down. Prozac and Soma. Soma was science fiction. Prozac's not science fiction. But Prozac has a lot of other weird side effects, like it kills your libido. Does all types of funny things, but you know, and we're only using Prozac as an example. You mentioned a couple other ones. Well, I mean, Valium they prescribe a lot. Uh huh. Um, 
Adderall and ADHD drugs tend to do the same thing. It just, I mean, Valium, obviously, if you're really excitable or excited or nervous or stressed or tense, it gets rid of that. But it also gets rid of, like, if you're motivated or if you're happy or if you're all kinds of things. It just sort of neutral levels It smooths you out. It smooths you out, gets rid of the peaks, makes you standard. Now, do you see we have a society that values standardization? Now, what if someone is depressed and needs something like Prozac? Well, we have a, you know, an epidemic of depression in this, in, in this world. What if someone is depressed? You can sort of say two things. Well, there could be a chemical imbalance, and you could ask, well, why are there so many people depressed? Meaning, is it that there's an individual that has a chemical imbalance in the brain, or is there something really wrong with society that's causing so many people? You have a few people depressed, Prozac is very reasonable. But when you have so many people depressed that you pick up the supplies of Prozac in the Thames River... I mean, you're, you're sedating your entire population, just about. Something's got to be wrong. So the point is that we as a society value something. You can find it in our huge numbers of pre-law, very few numbers of math and political science joint majors, physics majors, very few. What do you do if you become an academic? You have to think of new ideas. You have tons of free time. You can actually get paid for a whole year. And you get tenure. You can't even be sacked because you come up with new ideas. You can actually get paid. And during, and during that year, or during your five months off, jump in your car, zip out to the Grand Canyon, sit on the edge of the Grand Canyon, look up at the sky and say... What am I going to write about next? What will inspire me? Just between you and God, looking out there and the whole vistas, and suddenly you're asking, you know, what lawyer actually would go to the Grand Canyon, look up at the edge, look into the sky and say, who am I going to sue next? (laughs) I mean, there's just not a reason for that level of inspiration to do that. You'd go to the Grand Canyon, of course, as a lawyer to have a lawyer to have fun. A doctor would do the same thing, but you're not going there to be inspired to do your next to next to do your next lawsuit. Ah, uh, but some doctors get paid a lot of money to do nothing but sit in a lab and do research. Yeah, well, then they're doing research. Then we're doing. They're research. also finding cures for cancer. They're finding cures and doing research. There was a research end. I was talking about the people who are, you same know. Patient seeing patients 15 minutes a shot not really fixing their lives as much as patching them up and sending them back out into the world and so now believe me I, I, I value doctors I need them I mean I just had a hernia repaired right and uh, I had to I had a first rate surgeon here at Emory patched me up put my intestine back into my stomach patched it up and uh, I'm no longer walking around with a cane and he did a great job. All the people at the, at the hospital did a great job here at Emory. And, I mean, I, I had extraordinary care. So I value, you know, doctor services. But what I'm questioning now is why we have so much standardization in the way that we think, such that we all move as a herd. Well, what happens when somebody wants to do something unusual, become a physics major or a math 
political science joint major. What do they do? What do the dorm room people do when they all look at them and say, they're all going to pre-law or they're all going to pre-med and then this one guy comes up and says, I want to study quantum mechanics. <laughs> I just nerd really alert. like it. What, is, what happens? Nerd alert. Yeah, what do they call You said it perfect. A nerd alert. The guy's a nerd. And if he's deepened, or, or she, and, and if they're deep into technology, then they become not only a nerd, but a geek. A geek. <laughs> do you get the idea? We ridicule them. We ridicule people who want to do new and creative and interesting things. That's standardization. And now we have these standardized tests. Well, look, I'm all in favor. Of, look, I'm the big pusher for math and political science. I used to teach college-level math, first and second year college calculus, before I taught political science. So I'm a big pusher for, for, for math, and I was the big pusher for the new joint major in math and political science. But do we solve that problem by standardizing things? There's meaning, I'm not, and in fact, I'm not even opposed to tests, but the issue is what is it in our society that makes us want to value standard things. The and safety of that. If everything's the same, then you know how to react. And you feel safer with that than if something's different. Yeah. That's really interesting. When everything's the same, you know how to react. And what was the last thing you said? You feel safer. You feel safe. Because, I mean, I think it's, that it's not only the fear of being ridiculed, but just the fear of doing something new. Like, if everyone everyone knows if you become a doctor, you go to med school, I mean, you're set. But if you go into, a, a, like, a field like physics or maybe anthropology, or, you're not so sure about your future. You don't know what's going what's gonna to happen since the demand is not so so much for it. So you're like, you know what, I'm taking a chance. And you're then it's the way our parents have just ingrained this idea of, okay, you have to be a doctor, you have to be a lawyer. Like, my, I, I admire my sister. I mean, she wanted to be a doctor her whole life. And her second year in college, she decided to be an anthropologist. And my mom's like, what, what, the, what are you doing? What, what the hell is an anthropologist? I didn't know what that was. <laughs> and she's like, she's like, no, it's really interesting to me. Now she's like going to Tajikistan and all these other countries. And we always make, we always joke around like, oh, you know, when are you going to get a real job? And actually, get, what is the bills going to get paid from? You're not going to make what? They're not going to pay you in bones, are there or something? But um, she doesn't care. You know, she's like, I don't care about the money. I'm just trying to do something new and interesting because... It excites her, but how many people actually do something like that? You just said it. How many people actually will do something like that? Now, when I graduated from college, I graduated from Rutgers College in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And how many people have seen the movie The Graduate? Only one? Actually, you should all see it. It's really good with yeah. Dustin Hoffman. And one of the classic scenes, the fa- it was Dustin Hoffman's first big movie. And one of his classic, one of the classic scenes is when he graduated. His father had a party. His parents had a party for him at their house, and all the big shots were brought in. And one of the big shots, which were the neighbors, friends of the father, very successful, wealthy people, and one of the friends pulled Dustin Hoffman over to the side and said, "Let me give you some advice." And Dustin Hoffman said, "Yes," and he said, "Plastics." Plastics. <laughs> I think the future was in plastics. Go into plastics. Well, I had almost an identical experience when I graduated from college. I went over to my dad's house, and he pulled me over to the side, put his arm around my shoulder, and said, "Son, 
Xerox. <laughs> Xerox. And one of his neighbors was a big honcho in Xerox. And he arranged an interview for me, and I was supposed to go there, and, and they wanted the idea was for me to become a salesman for Xerox. And I went to the interview, and I, I, I'm awfully glad that never, I never went that way. But standardization, a standard that was valued. Okay? But the idea of me becoming a professor, uh, initially people were sort of saying, you know, professor in political science, what do you want to do that for? Same thing that happened to your sister, the anthropologist. Did right. you see the Stepford Wives? No, actually, that's one I, 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 don't, I didn't see. Go ahead. Well, it's, it's just all these husbands, all these guys realize, you know, that they have ideal women. You know that, or that you know they want they want their wives to be yeah. a certain way, and they want their houses to be gigantic, and they want you know they don't want to, they don't want to, they don't want their wives to care if they go to the club at night, and they don't want their wives to care if they do this, that, and the other, and so Matthew Broderick creates. I'm, I'm sorry, it's not Matthew Broderick. Um, Glenn Close. Mm-hmm. Uh, and anyway, one of them creates like a robotic spouse, mm-hmm. and then they have like a remote control to like control them, and then. Every guy in the community has like a robotic wife. Mm-hmm. That's exactly you know the stereotypical wife. Stays at home and takes care of the kids, keeps everything yeah, clean. Yeah, and, yeah. and um, and so you know, and it's just that same sort of thing. Just you know, everybody was standard. All and these happy. guys and happy and happy and and all these guys you know had their wives, and you know one night their, their real wife would just disappear, and then the next day this robot would take her place, and then she would just clean up the house and do everything for the kind of guy had a remote control and he could turn her on and shut her off and just, you know, and it was... No, I didn't see the movie. I, I saw the trailers for the thing. Uh, whatever happened in the very end? Uh, the no, in the end... They came back, they the wives, like didn't they? They don't like change. And, well, in the end... Didn't the wives come back at the very one end? One of the wives, yeah. like, doesn't actually, like, go through the change. She yeah. Like, it. And then they, like, destroy the other wives yeah. and then all the real wives come back and they're like, what were you thinking? <laughs> it's an interesting it was an interesting I, I remember the trailers very clearly it has an interesting idea it's very similar to that to this idea of standardization our, our society values it our, our individuals value it well if you have a society that values standardization are we really that much different than the brave new world that Alice Huxley is talking about <laughs> meaning you can, go ahead there's a difference between valuing standardization and enforcing it. Like, it, we, yes, we, like, value it, but we don't force anybody to be standard. People still have individual choice. Like, they can choose to be a professor. They can choose to be a lawyer. They can choose to be a sheep or choose to be, like, an anthropologist or anything. They can choose we to move up and down socially, too. Exactly. But... We this level like of choice is, is more restricted, I would argue, than you are giving it credit for. It's true that... it still exists. While in the brave new world, there's no choice at all. You're born, you're made, before you're born, it's determined that, okay, uh, embryo number 25751 is yeah. going to be a minor in Venezuela. So then they put you through, they condition you, so you're nothing but a minor from Venezuela. You don't have the choice to go and become an academic or to become a painter. In fact, they they manipulate you genetically and conditioning with electric shocks and drugs and everything, and even in the womb, even in the in in, in vitro fertilization or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. So 
uh, we value civilization, but we don't enforce it to the point that they do in the... Well, with science fiction, should we be looking for an exact parallel, or yeah. should science fiction be ex- exaggerating so the problems that actually exist? Well, my point is that while we value standardization in this world, we, as yet, we don't like make standardization the only way to go. My point is that we still have the uh, ability to like choose our own parts. But in some aspects, we don't. If you think about like. And this is kind of an extreme example, but like crime, like there's a standardized way in which Americans behave, and people who behave outside, above or beyond that standard, they get arrested, they get put in jail. Uh, you know, that's I mean, criminals are people who behave other than the accepted standards of our community, and so don't we just standardize the abnormal people right out of our well, let's look at this in a different way, because you're absolutely correct about the sanctions that society can place on on non-standard people. First, is they can drug them with, you know, Prozac, Adderall, Valium, etc. But there's another issue. Even if you are able to break away from the herd and choose a different career physics, math, political science and math, something like that, sociology and math, whatever. And you're in there with only a few people. And to give you an example, you know, we have tons of medical school graduates, people going into medical school here at Emory. We have maybe five, six, seven, eight graduate students in political science. A drop in the hat, I mean a drop in the bucket. In comparison, and you know, undergraduates in physics, just a handful. Similar in, similarly in math, relative to pre-med and political science, it's very few. So what if you are able to break away and to do those other things? And what if you actually become a physicist, a political scientist who does math, someone different? Do you really have free latitude to think and to say things that are really different? But your own argument, you do. Your own argument was that academics like spend their entire time just thinking of new things. That was my argument of what they can do. The reality is they often, they very rarely even do that. There's so much standardization within the academy and standardization in the ways of thinking that people who deviate from standardized norms get sanctioned in the academy. That's why tenure is necessary. Tenure is necessary so that that very rare person that does think differently and publish differently cannot be punished for doing that. Sometimes they still can be punished, but it's it's more difficult to be punished. Let me give you an example. A number of months ago, I went down to Georgia Tech, Georgia Institute of Technology, and a professor, a former professor, a former professor of nuclear engineering was brought down to give a presentation at Georgia Tech. uh, The uh, presenter was John Russell and he's the inventor of the first palladium seeds. Little seeds are those 
little rice-shaped pellets that they use to tra- treat prostate and breast cancer, varieties of cancers. They put them into the cancers and they have slow, they have a slow-acting radia- radiation that kills the cancer. And it was a revolution in, in the treatment of various forms of cancer, including, uh, for a while, predominantly prostate cancer, but other forms of cancer as well, seeds, little radioactive pellets. Anyway, he was brought down there, invited to speak at, the, at Georgia Tech on the subject of low-energy nuclear reactions, which is cold fusion. Now, remember when there were two Brigham Young professors that wrote about cold fusion, they had... They had had some experiments, they had done some work on it, and they seemed to be getting nuclear byproducts and things, but it wasn't perfectly replicable. Now, what happened? They published something that was out of the ordinary. wasn't supposed to have happened. It's not, you're supposed to have nuclear reactions in suns or in atomic bombs and things like that, fusion. And these people were saying at, at basic room temperature, you get this low level of nuclear reactions. Well, the press jumped on them like a, like, like a, a pile up at a rugby game and bash them. They had to basically go into seclusion. <laughs> Finally, a Japanese company started to f- support them and they went off the radar screen. That's what I understand. I, I was told that. I'm not sure it's true, but I was told that the, they were still getting funding and still doing work on it, but not publicly. And the whole idea of cold fusion was ridiculed, absolutely ridiculed, by people who were just really thought of a different idea and published something about it. The reality was the cold fusion process was difficult to replicate. Lots more people were interested in it, but they didn't want to do it. So now when I went down to this presentation at George Institute of Technology, it was a big auditorium and it was standing room only. It was packed. So many people, professors, graduate students, wanted to know about this cold fusion stuff. (coughs) Let me tell you, I guarantee you, had a reporter walked into that room, you would have seen a mass exodus. People would have just left. The professor that introduced him, John Russell, said, by means of introducing him, uh, that John Russell is doing some very interesting stuff. Uh, We want to hear about it. But I want to caution any of your graduate students from doing any research in this area. It's too controversial, that type of thing. You have to, you know, it's too high risk, too controversial. You have to do stuff that's more acceptable to get your your degree done and so on. So, you know, the caution was, you know, this is high, you know, high-end, out-there type of stuff, and you don't want to do it for your graduate work. But here it is. Now... The reality is that the cold fusion process has actually been replicated a whole bunch of times now. They found out all types of funny things. For example, it's often they often use a substance called palladium with cold fusion. You can get cold fusion reactions using the substance of palladium, and then you get the substance again. You use palladium from the same manufacturer, same everything, and it won't work. So you can't replicate it. But if you use one batch of palladium that comes from one manufacturer, it will work. You order it from the same manufacturer in another batch or from a different manufacturer, it won't work. Lots of idiosyncrasies are involved with it. It's very difficult to replicate, but it, can, it happens quite often. Like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Pardon me? Like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? It's a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde thing. You can't really figure it out. And then they found out, they did more investigations. They found out in the actual palladium that they were using in their experiments that if you look at it under a very, very high-level microscope, 
the cold fusion seemed to occur in situations in which the palladium itself had little small fractures on it. And the cold fusion reactions, the nuclear reactions, were happening only at the microscopic tips of these sharp fractures. And if you manufactured it slightly different and it was more smooth without these little fractures in the surface, you don't get the reaction. But on the surface, you look at the palladium, it doesn't look any different. All types of small little things like that were are being discovered. Now they've got 14, approximately 14 processes where they can get this low-level nuclear reactions going. Do you get the idea? People are willing to say, hey, look, they're doing that. But when you talk to people, the scientists out there that are doing it, very few are willing to acknowledge it publicly, that they're interested in this thing. So the point is, there's a lot of constraints, even in academia, to what you can do. And if you do something that's very unusual, you really have to be aware that you're going to be battered. Now look at some of our, our, our great ancestors. Look at Jesus. Look at Socrates. Socrates basically stood around the marketplace and asked people questions, forced them to think. Jesus basically said, God is a happy God. That was the revolution that that caused. How did they pay for good teaching? They paid for good teaching with their lives. So, is it that our current society is flawed and our leaders are flawed? Is it a problem with Mustafa Mond? in the book? Is it his problem that we're dealing with? Or is there something different? What do you think? Go ahead. Uh, The example that you gave of like Jesus, Socrates, Galileo, all of the other controversial thinkers, they were in the past, so it's not not our modern leaders or anything. So it's not so much a problem with leaders as a problem with society as with humanity in general that we're scared of change that we don't want to think out of the box we want to just be like the uh, like sheep and then every so often you get this spark bright spark that will light it up and will create a new idea a new way for us to think but they normally have to be so committed they're willing to get their entire lives to that yeah now now let me follow up on something that you're saying here you say it's a problem then with society at large yeah our standards are too low what's that our standards are too low our standards are too low that's go ahead I think because it seems like you know even when you tell these young inner, these youth who are like who are struggling like you know if you work hard you can go to college and have a career but that's it you, they don't, you never tell any of them you can have a career revolutionize something and have a real impact on the planet but it's always just the goal in life is to get a good job, get a good house, and you know you've you've succeeded in life. Yeah. But I mean, he who dies with the most toys wins. Win. Yeah, exactly. So it's like it's not even encouraged. How many professors, or how many teachers, or how many parents will tell their kids to, you know, become something, and you know, not only become a doc. It's it's not just about becoming become a doctor or lawyer. Doctors and lawyers can revolutionize whatever. They can. But it just. People just don't, once they get in, they're like, all right, I'm in. Now I can just relax, you know, get my 401k plan, and, you know, I'm set. But it's like, if the society doesn't encourage being unique and thinking outside the box and trying to do something that's revolutionary, I mean, we'll, we'll never have, whether it's a doctor or, or someone in the academic field, we're never going to have any 
new unique ideas because people just refuse to. I think the advantage of being in a field where there's not that many people, it's easier to get to the top. I think no matter what profession you go to, if you want to get to the top, you're going to get to the top. Whether you're a doctor or a lawyer or a professor, the best will get to the top. But I think regardless of profession people go into, no one wants to get to the top. Everyone is afraid to get to the top because they think there's this like, there's this phobia of if you make it there, people are just going to question you and ridicule you or something like that. Oh, why are you thinking like this? Or So I think our society needs to change its focus, encourage people to go up there. I mean, it's getting a little bit better in terms of people are trying to get educated. I mean, the amount of people going to college is a lot more than it used to be 50 years ago, but I still think it's... You know, that's a really interesting set of points you're making. It's... It's something that I want to push one level more. You're saying it about our society, but now let's look. What about our society? We're, we're experiencing this conformity this, this this mandate to conform here in America. What about Saudi Arabia? It's even more level of conformity. What about the former Soviet Union? What about Cuba? What about all of these other countries? And they mentioned also in this New York Times article, Prussia, Germany, Prussian educational system. And if you think about it, Socrates was an American. Jesus was an American. Abraham wasn't American. Like Yet there's a conformity in the way of thought. Muhammad wasn't American, but there's a conformity in the way of thought. Now these great leaders in the past were aberrations. They were different. But then what happened after the great leaders shook things up? Things settled down to a new conformity that takes into account their idea. Yeah, there's a standardization that occurs afterwards. So I ask you a question. Is it society? Or is it us? Meaning, is it a genetic issue? You put a whole bunch of humans together and from any culture, any society, any past, even after a great leader has shaken them up and changed them, they begin to solidify, rigidify, cause standardization. Well, well, what if that's kind of like a genetic thing? I mean, I mean, have you ever read Richard Dawkins' Selfish Gene? Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. It's a it's a novel about how nothing anyone does is ever altruistic. Yeah. Even the things that would seem the most altruistic have some benefit either to you personally or uh, basically to you personally. Everything mm -hmm. you do, no matter what you know, no matter what, has some benefit to you personally. And um, I think that if you shake people up enough, and then they settle back down. Even if you change their outside surroundings, if their interior motivation is still selfish, fundamentally non-altruistic, and you take what Richard Dawkins said, you know, as the gospel truth, then you end up with people that aren't susceptible to change. Not the way that, not the way that someone shaking them up, if they, someone shaking them up isn't going to change them because when they settle back down again, it's just new surroundings with the same motivation. The same thing is to be selfish. And if everyone's selfish, everyone's going to end up conforming because they figured out the way to maximize 
you know, as soon as they figure out a way to maximize the individual gain, then everyone's going to do the same thing. Everyone's standard again. Someone shakes them up. They settle back down. There's a new way to get the maximum gain. So you change a little, and then everyone changes to that form, you know? It's kind of like evolution. I mean, you know. It's kind of sad. It, it is kind of sad. It's sad. It's, it's a bad thing, but it's almost like, I mean, it's kind of inevitable. I mean, if something new occurs, everyone wants to do something new. You can't have people go in a million directions. I mean, that wouldn't work either. But, I mean, it is... I don't, I don't, I don't see how, like, our society could function if everyone is, I mean, I, it would be diverse in terms of thinking, but I mean, you kind of need, in terms of, like, okay, elective office, if you have everyone thinking in a different way, wanting to elect someone different, well, I mean, you can't have. But, see, if the men, like, the mental gymnastics that we would have to do to, like, get our minds around altering our society that drastically, because it's never been done before, like, if everyone was going in their own way, you couldn't even, like, no societal norm that was present today would even be, you know, possible in the least. Like, yeah, you know. That's not true. Like, the thing, that shall not kill. That would remain the same. That would remain the same, world. but the thing, like, okay, like, motivation today for furtherance of science is that you will improve the lot of general humanity, right? Wouldn't you agree that most scientists do research to improve, you know, the lot of other people and, you know, to improve life in general? But if everyone's going separate directions, then your entire motivation for research changes. I mean, if some people are going, you know, everyone's going different way, doing their own thing. Instead of having everybody trying to like do cold fusion, for example, you've got one person trying to do cold fusion, and one person trying to uh, create a cure for cancer, find the longevity gene. So it you might not be the best thing because if you could get ev- because if you let everyone go their own direction, there's no coherent, there's no cohesiveness of society. All of a sudden, you have people each doing their own independent thing. The first thing that comes into their head, or maybe not. I mean, maybe they have longer term plans than that, but still, they're not. The connection is gone. The connection is gone between people, and if you're trying to do research, you're you're going to be helping you know a few here and a few there, but everybody's going their own way, so it won't apply to everyone, and you can't get enough people. I mean, if you got a bunch of people standardized to do the same research, then you've just thrown out our whole idea of everyone going in different directions. Like it just. Now wait a second. Uh, I think Aldous Huxley is speaking to this directly. You're 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 sounding a bit like Mustafa Mond in, in in one way. Because what happened when they did an experiment off an island in the Mediterranean, where they put remember the where they they they, they tried to put a whole what's the top tier level alpha plus. the alpha plus and they put a whole everybody on the entire island was alpha plus everybody and what happened right after that exactly what you're saying they were all going their own different way nothing nothing conforming. And Mustafa Mond was then explaining to John Savage, you see that we can't have that. We have to have different layers of people organized doing different things for that same reason. Well, the reality is that there seems to be something that inclines people to want to live in a society in which there is this level of standardization. And arguments like you're raising right now sound awfully reasonable. The reality is, however, how many people do we really have that shake things up? That change things? What's that? 
once in every few generations? They're very few. <laughs> They're very few. Whoa. Now the question is, are they genetic abnormalities? Are they aberrations? Yes. They no. may be. We don't know. I think like if our... It, it doesn't have to be one person who does it makes a difference. I think if our entire society changes views on changing the world, a group of people can make a difference. Uh, or uh, It's like the... It's it's like the cycle of history thing that you've got the entire weight of history pushing behind you to make sure that like things won't change that people will stay in one like selfish way and sometimes you have to take it from like the fundamental angle like I don't know have you ever read Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan? of course well in, in his idea of you know the original state of nature man it's a very violent state of nature and the state of nature is just like natural chaos and man realizes that, you know, I can kill this other man and get away with it. There's no one to stop me, and I can take his possessions. But equally, that other man can kill me, and there's no one to stop him and take my possessions. So if we mutually enter into contract and give that ability to kill us to someone else, our ruler, then I'm safe from him, and he's safe from me, and my, my goods, my belongings are pretty much safe. Even if you're safe from me, will that? Well, you're not safe from your ruler, but you're, you're safe from each other. And in in Brave New World, you people become standardized through that kind of thinking. You, you, you know, you just gave up. You just gave up this random right. Now, I mean, not the right to kill someone, obviously. It's sort of, but I mean, you give up this this you know random right to go off on a complete tangent, and the other person gives up this random right to go off on a complete tangent, and you end up in this standardized channel of humanity. I mean, maybe it's fundamentally human that people want to maintain. They realize that if they can't get ahead, they want to keep other people down. If we can, if we can stop that other person from killing me then I won't kill him and we'll just stay on a par. We, we won't ever advance because, you know, we can just mutually keep each other at the same place. It's almost like, I won't think, just protect me. You know what I mean? It's like, we won't further our cause, we won't take any of our ideas, but just, we want protection. It's almost like that. Like, we don't care if we don't advance in our life, but we don't want to be in danger of, you know. You know, this can, this can affect everybody. Obviously, we're a society that really depends on the aberrations, on the anomalies. And what happened in the very end, when three of the three of the adventurous people were just becoming too adventurous? What did Mustafa Man do? He gave them an ultimatum. He said that they have to go. They could leave. And there were certain areas that were not conditioned, not cultured, not standardized that they could go to artist colonies things like that but they couldn't stay the point is I think that Aldous Huxley is telling us is that we are a society that can very easily be led down the road of standardization we are a human species that can be very easily led down the road of standardization and it can include drugging us which we are already in the middle of the Thames River Prozac drugging us to do whatever we need to do taking I know there's a lot of students in universities all over the country that take Adderall right before tests whether they whether they have ADHD or anything they it's just boost them up and then they take a calmer downer after that back and forth up and down there's not that really much difference between some of the drug abuse that goes on in our society and the stuff that you're hearing from Aldous Huxley. 
we are a society of we are we are a species it seems to like that and we really depend tremendously on these anomalies every once in a while these people to come in that really think differently and that shake us up and when they do it we kill them or we banish them or we punish them in some way and then long after that we say thank goodness they were here they now set us on the right path and now this is the right path and we must not deviate from this new right path. You can, I mean, you can just talk about, like, Galileo. I mean, uh, and then there are examples all throughout history. I mean, I think uh, Antoine Lavoisier, I think, ended up being beheaded. He was getting found oxygen. I mean, just, I mean, just different people all throughout history. We're a very strange species. And anyone who really tries to change us, to help us, runs real serious risks runs real serious risks. Robert Oppenheimer, anyone? And, yeah, and, and what do we what do we say now? This actually goes back to Saint's comment earlier with regard to risk. Why are there so many pre-law and pre-med? It's not risky. To, to be opposite runs risk. And only a few people really go in the direction of risk. And even among those people who go into these alternative majors like physics, math, political science things like that even among them only a few of them really are able courageous enough to really bash through and do something really strange really different we really rely on them as a society to do that well look uh, we will continue with Aldous Huxley next time